hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, this morning, uh, we continue our sermon series entitled, The Good Hand of God, uh, Restoring and Preserving His People, which is a study of the last three Old Testament historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, these three books cover right at about 100 years of Jewish history. And very specifically, it's the 100 years that came after the Babylonian army's destruction of Jerusalem, after the Jewish people's 70 years of servitude in Babylon. Uh, and the overthrow of the nation, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the 70-year Babylonian captivity were all God's judgment on the nation of Israel for persistent rebellion against Him. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah focus on three small Jewish remnants who return to their homeland. First two remnants is what Ezra is all about, and that third remnant that returns is what Nehemiah is all about. Uh, while the book of Esther focuses on the much larger number of Jews that chose to remain in the land of their captivity, not return to their homeland. Now, let me begin with just a brief review of last Sunday's lesson, just to bring us all up to speed in which we examined the first two chapters of Ezra. Uh, we did look at prophecies that were given by Isaiah, and especially Jeremiah, which not only foretold the destruction of the Jewish nation and their 70-year captivity in Babylon, but these prophecies also foretold that after the 70-year Babylonian captivity, God would restore His people to their homeland and He would bless them once again. And just as God promised, uh, right at the end of the 70-year captivity, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire where the Jews uh, were serving their captivity. Uh, and then uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple and to restore their nation. Uh, we saw that the first two chapters of Ezra are clearly divided into three sections. Uh, first, you have the decree of Cyrus, allowing the Jews to return to their homeland which we saw last week, very important, is attributed totally to God, moving in the heart of this pagan king. So right at the beginning of the book, we're met with the sovereignty of God, that he even can move in the hearts of unbelievers, a pagan king like Cyrus, and to stir his heart to accomplish his plan on behalf of his people. So uh, these books, all three of these books, are in a beautiful illustration of Romans 
that God calls is for, for the sake of his people, all things, good and bad, uh, to work ultimately for our spiritual benefit and welfare. And we see that here. Uh, the second uh, section of, uh, that is the latter part of the first uh, chapter is the exodus of the first Jewish remnant out of Babylon uh, to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Jerubbabel, who was a civil servant and a descendant of, uh, of David. Uh, and when uh, they began to make that exodus, uh, Cyrus also ordered, which was very interesting, he ordered the Jews that were remaining to provide the returning Jews with gold, uh, livestock, and other items of worth to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Cyrus, the Persian king, also gave the returning Jews over 5,000 sacred articles of gold and silver that had been taken from Solomon's temple by the Babylonians when they destroyed Solomon's temple to be returned to the new temple uh, that the Jews were returning to rebuild. And then the third section, which is basically chapter 2, is you have the naming uh, of the very brave souls who navigated the close to 1,000-mile difficult and dangerous journey back to Jerusalem, a group numbering uh, close to 50,000 uh, people. Now, what were the main truths we learned from last week's lesson that we can apply to our lives today? There were three, and here they are. Again, just in review. Number one, God is sovereign. He reigns, and He will accomplish His plans and His purposes. Therefore, from our perspective as, as God's children, when life seems against me, I don't have to doubt that the Lord is for me. And if God is for me, then by golly, who can be against me? Amen? Amen. Uh, and so although I may not can trace his hand, I can trust his heart, knowing that he's working to accomplish his plans and his purposes. The second truth we saw is God keeps his promises. Just as he told the people of his judgment on them because of their sin that was for the purpose of disciplining them, correcting them, bringing them back to God, he fulfilled his promise to restore them. That the, as we've already mentioned in previous lessons, that the final word would not be the failure of God's people, but the triumph of God's love. And that's true today. Therefore, I can trust God even when everything seems so dark and there seems no rhyme or reason. And as you've heard me share in other series from this pulpit, uh, one thing I've noticed about God uh, after work, walking with Him for many, many years and ministering to many, many people is that when we hit times of adversity, typically God doesn't bother to give us explanations. But He does give us promises promised us to serve as an anchor for our soul in those dark times of adversity. And the reason he doesn't give explanations, he wants to grow our what? Our faith in him, our trust in him, to teach us to lean on him because it's in leaning, 
trusting, putting our faith in him that we develop intimacy with him. And then the third truth, very, very important one, God's discipline is a loving father's hand of correction, not a harsh judge's verdict of condemnation. Therefore, submit to rather than resist God's discipline because he's only brought it because he loves you. And he knows you're going in a direction that's not going to be to your profit. It's going to bring destruction to you. And therefore, he's trying to arrest you from continuing in that direction, get your attention, recapture your affections, that you would return to him. Now, today we come to the third lesson in our study uh, with the focus being on one of the most practical lessons uh, to be learned from the book of Ezra. Now, here's reality, and let's all just have an honest moment with one another. Just like the children of Israel, who because of sin suffered severe discipline from God, we are not immune from the same thing happening to us today. Your pastor is not immune. The elders, the deacons, no one in this church family, no believer is immune from that. We too can neglect, disobey, and rebel against God's word. We too can lose our first love, grow spiritually cold, backslide into worldliness, and find ourselves in captivity to sin. We too can be disciplined by God that seems to leave our lives in ruin. But just like we see with the children of Israel, God's discipline is not meant to destroy us, but to restore us. Just like the children of Israel, God not only opens the way for our return, but as we saw last week in Ezra 1.5, it is God's Spirit who stirs in our hearts to return. In other words, when God brings discipline, yes, there are typically external circumstances that He brings to break us, to get our attention, to turn us back to Him. But as those external pressures are having its effect on us, as God's child, the Spirit of God lives in me. And internally, He's convicting. He's stirring in my heart, creating a desire, a longing to return uh, to, uh, to God. If you are God's child through faith in Jesus Christ, He loves you. Listen to me now. He loves you with a love that will never let you go. But he also loves you with a love that's never going to let you off. God is fully committed to your spiritual good and welfare to do what is best for you. So sometimes God has to practice tough love because we can get hard and rebellious. But let me remind you of one of Jeremiah's prophecies we looked at last week. And then we'll use this to launch us in today's 
message. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Just listen. We, we looked at this last week. For thus says the Lord, he's speaking to his, his people that have uh, fallen in sin, suffered severe discipline that resulted in this 70-year captivity in a foreign land. He says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon. Now, let's, let's make that personal. You can say, when God's discipline has run its course in my life, after the spanking God has given me, after God's put me in a timeout, or whatever privilege God may have taken from me, this is what God says, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Remember, this is being said to a people that fell into idolatry, gross immorality, even inhumanity, the shedding of innocent blood. And he tells this people, this is what he's saying here. We often take these verses out of context. It's in the context of discipline. It's in the context of judgment. But God says, I love you with a love that will never fail you. Therefore, although I have corrected you severely, I have disciplined you harshly for your good. My, plan, my plans for, you are for your welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then, see, this is the purpose of God's discipline, to bring you to this place. Then you will call upon me. You will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. Amen? Now look with me, and this is today's lesson, the road. The road from ruin to restoration. Like I said, this is one of the most practical lessons in the entire book of Ezra uh, that we can apply to our lives today. We're talking about the steps that God will lead you to take, that God will empower you to take as you return to Him following a time of sin, following a time of rebellion, after God has disciplined you severely. This is the road that you must take from ruin to restoration. And here's step one, and we already looked at this in Ezra chapters one and two, you have to return to the place of blessing. I mean, when you, end, when you come to the end of chapter 2, they're back in the land. They're back in the promised land. So they had to, what, turn their backs on Babylon. They had to take that long thousand-mile journey at great risk, at great cost, and get back to the place of blessing. So look at the first bullet point in your notes. And this is the 
This is the first step that's got to be taken. The very first step, get honest about my backslidden condition. I have to get honest that I'm where I'm at because of my stinking sin and turning away from God. And the Israelites had to admit that. We're in Babylon. We've suffered this captivity because of our sin, because of our rebellion. God never perfectly intended this. No parent wakes up in the morning trying to figure out all the ways they're going to discipline their child. You 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 don't relish that because you love your child when they do misbehave and that you will administer discipline just like God will with his children. Look at Psalm 32, 5. And this is, what, this is where you need to come to. This is the first step. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Do you know who spoke those words? David. David, after he was guilty of adultery, murder, And worst of all, his attempt to hide his sin in the darkness of deception. Right now, right, right now, you, I'm talking about you, you are either walking in light, and what I mean by that is you're being totally honest and transparent with God and others, fully acknowledging and confessing your sin, or you are walking in darkness. You're walking in dishonesty and deceit, trying to minimize, justify, excuse, and hide your sin. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals or he who hides his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Look again at David's statement in Psalm 32, 5, and notice, don't miss this, one verse, eight personal pronouns, eight personal pronouns, as he takes full responsibility for his sin, and he comes clean before God. He says, I acknowledge my sin to thee and my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Now, the beauty of that is, notice, circle the word acknowledge and confess. When you acknowledge your sin and you confess your transgressions, what does that lead to? Forgive the guilt. The guilt is forgiven. The guilt is forgiven. So that is the first step you must take on the road that leads from ruin to restoration with God. Look at the next bullet point in your, neck, in your notes. You must become hurt for damaging God's reputation. You must become hurt for damaging God's reputation. This happened with the Jews there in Babylon. They realized they had brought reproach upon the name of God. They were identified with the Holy God as His people. And as a result of their sin... They became a laughingstock to their nations, and not only did they become a laughingstock, but they caused people to scorn and mock and ridicule the God they claimed to serve and follow. Look at James 4, verses 9 and 10. Be miserable 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is referring to what the apostle Paul called godly sorrow that leads to repentance and restoration. We're not talking about being sorry over the consequences of your sin, being sorry over the discipline God's administered to you, but being sorry over the fact that you sinned against God. Being sorry over the fact that the sin that Jesus died for became more important to you than Christ himself. That your sin was an act of betrayal, an act of spiritual adultery that wounded and pained Christ's heart more than the nails that pierced his hands and feet on Calvary's tree. So I must get honest about my backslidden condition. I must hurt for damaging God's reputation. And then, very simply, I got to head back. Head back. Head back to God. Look at Lamentations 3, verses 39 and 40. Why should we? Mere humans complain when we are punished for our sins. Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he, God, will have compassion on him. In James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. Have you turned away from God? This morning, do you find your life in ruins? Do you find your life in captivity to sin? Is there a longing in your heart for restoration? Then listen to me, beloved. Listen to me. You have not crossed the point of no return. I don't care to what depths you've plunged in your sin. On the authority of God's word, the way of restoration is open. And the Lord waits to be gracious, but you must first return to that place of blessing. You must turn your back on the Babylon of this world that has held you captive. You must confess and forsake the sin that led you into that captivity, and you must get back to that old ground of acceptance and blessing. What am I referring to? I'm referring to God's promise, His promise of unmerited favor, grace, and mercy through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that leads us right to the second step. Right to the second step. I must not only return to the place of blessing, but step number two, I must rebuild the altar of sacrifice. Feel free to turn your Bibles to Ezra 3. We want to look at verses 1 through 3, or you can just listen to me read these verses. Now listen now. As I read. This is the first thing the Jews did when they returned to the place of blessing. The first thing. 
before they even had time to unpack, before they even took the time to care for themselves, to provide for themselves. This is the very first thing they did. Now, when the seventh month came, Ezra 3, verse 1 through 3. Now, when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, in which they, they had just returned, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priests, and Jerubbabel, the son of Zetael, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God, uh, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation. In other words, they went to the old site outside of Solomon's temple that was laying in ruins. And this foundation and this altar, the, the former altar had been destroyed. They went back to that site and they set up the altar on its foundation for they were terrified because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, what is the significance of rebuilding the altar? Why was this such an immediate priority? Now, listen to me. So important. Because it was at the altar of sacrifice that they would receive what they needed most. And what they needed most was the assurance of forgiveness. What they needed most was confidence that they had been reconciled to God. What they needed most was the awareness that God's presence was with them to protect them from their enemies. And as we see in the text, they were terrified about the enemies that were surrounding them at this point. And they received all of that. Forgiveness, reconciliation, confidence that God's presence was with them. They received all of that, not on the basis of their efforts, not on the basis of their works to gain God's acceptance, but by faith in the efficacy of the blood that was shed on the altar of sacrifice for them. Too often, we think the problem is outside us and the solution must come from within us. The Bible turns that proposition totally upside down. Because it says the real problem is inside us. And the solution comes from outside of us. Why? Because the real problem is sin. My sin. Your sin. And the solution for sin can never be found in us. But only at the altar of sacrifice as we trust in the blood of the sacrifice to provide assurance of forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and confidence that God is with us and that He is for us. The altar they built in Ezra chapter 3 was a symbol. It was a sign that pointed to the altar of the cross. The cross where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be slain for the sins of the world. So what is the application for us Today, as we travel the road that leads from ruin to restoration, look at the next two bullet points in your notes. Receive forgiveness at the altar through the blood of the one sacrificed for me. And of course here, we're not talking about the blood of animals that they sacrificed in the Old Testament, but the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that those sacrifices pointed to. 
Look at Hebrews 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. There is no God's presence. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more compared to the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, what they secured for the Old Testament people, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But not only receive forgiveness at the altar through the blood of the one sacrificed for me, I need to, the next bullet point, surrender my life on the altar to live for the one who died for me. The cross is just not an altar that Jesus died on for my sins. He sanctified that cross, transformed it into an altar where now I lay down my life and surrender to him. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all so that they who live live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we're traveling the road leading from ruin to restoration. The first step is to return to the place of blessing by getting honest with God about my backslidden condition, hurt for damaging God's reputation, and then heading back to God. Step two, as I head back to God, i got to make a stop at the altar of sacrifice to receive forgiveness through the blood of the one sacrificed for me and to surrender my life to the one who died for me. Now we come to step three. Now listen now, which is so, so vitally important. And the reason step three is so important is because we don't want to fall back into sin. We don't want this return just to be a very temple a temporary uh, super, superficial state that we're in. See, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We want to be used by God. We want to persist in holiness, in righteousness, moving forward, not moving backward. And so what's step three? Reestablish the priority of worship. That's what you see in chapter three, verses four through 13. After they built that altar of sacrifice where they came to know the assurance of forgiveness, reconciliation with God, confidence God was with them and he would, he would protect them against their enemies. From 4 to verse 13, all you see now is reestablishing the priority of worship in the community because they just didn't want to get revival. They wanted to get it and keep it. And walk in it. And so look at those next four bullet points. And you see all of this in these verses. Fellowship with God's people under God's authority. You must be committed to fellowship with God's people under God's authority. Ezra 3 verse 1 says, The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And they gathered there not only to rebuild the altar, but as we see in verses 4 through 6, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles that came in the seventh month 
of the year, which it was at this particular time. And what we need to see is this marked the beginning of reestablishing the priority of worship as the returning Jews from this point on began to observe all the annual celebrations, all the feasts. They began to celebrate the weekly Sabbath worship and daily sacrifices as prescribed by God. So what is the lesson for us? Here it is. You cannot live the Christian life without being in fellowship with other believers. We need one another. We desperately need one another's encouragement. We need accountability. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. says it all. Let us consider. He's speaking to the church body. He's speaking to the church fellowship. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together. He's talking about this, what we're doing this morning, what you did in your Sunday school classes earlier today, what we'll do tonight as we come together for one in youth ministry and Jonathan's teaching. He says, don't forsake our assembling together. As in the tragic words, this is next phrase, as is the habit of some. The writer of Hebrews realized there were some in that church family that it actually developed a habit of not being in fellowship with God's people, not being in corporate worship with God's people, not being in the study of God's word with God's people, just trying to live the Christian life as a lone ranger. He says, not forsaking your own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, that day when Jesus will return. Look at the next bullet point. Not only must I get reconnected with God's people. Listen to me. Let me just, before we move on, let me just say this as a pastor that's been at this church for, uh, well, since 1977. You know, I've always noticed, typically the first telltale sign when a person begins to stray from God is they get out of fellowship with God's people. You begin to miss them in corporate worship. You begin to miss them in Sunday school. They're not involved in any small group. They're not involved in any particular Bible study. They're not involved with any other believer that's providing them encouragement and accountability. They're, they're, just, they're just isolated. And folks, when we get isolated, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And when you isolate yourself from God's people, when you think you can do it on your own, the devil laughs. Because he knows he has you. Because you cannot do it alone. We need one another. Then look at that next bullet point. Learn, love, and obey God's Word. I get reconnected in fellowship with God's people, the priority being on worship, and then I realize the priority in my life now is to learn, love, and live God's Word. And as for chapter 3, my time's going, but you discover phrases in that chapter that clearly indicate that the Jewish returnees uh, began to build their lives, their families, and their culture on the Word of God. Phrases like, 
as it is written in the law of Moses, as it is written according to the ordinance and according to the directions of King David. Everything they did, they went back to God's book and they began to build their lives, build their families, build their culture on God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is what? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. In other words, as I walk through life, I bring everything through the filter of God's word, every relationship, every circumstance. What direction do I get in God's word concerning this? James 1, verses 22 through 25. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. And if you do what it says, God will bless you for doing it. If I'm going to travel the road from ruin to restoration, the imperative to learn, love, and live God's word should be obvious. You know, all you have to do, think about this. All you have to do is ask the question, how did I get my life in ruins in the first place? I got there because I was doing things my way and not God's way. Well, goodness gracious, wake up. Wake up. If that is true, then the obvious point is stop doing things your way and start doing it God's way. And that's where blessing will come. That's where you'll get to that place of full restoration and continue to walk in that restoration and in in growth. Look at the next bullet point. They began to invest their time, talent, and treasure to complete God's work. Invest time, talent, and treasure to complete God's work. In other words, they stopped being just spectators and began to be participants in the life of God's family and to complete God's work. In verses 7 through 13 of Ezra 3, bottom line, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this next week. The Jews began to rebuild the temple. And of course, the temple represented not only worshiping God, but also serving God. And here's the point. As they began to travel that road from ruin to restoration, they made the time. They made the time. They supported the work through giving of material resources. They became involved in the work with the various gifts and talents that they had. See, as you travel the road to ruin to restoration, God wants you to accomplish his work for the welfare of others. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will be your what? Heart also. In other words, what you're giving your time to, what you're giving your material resources to, what you're getting involved in, that shows what's important to you. That shows what is the treasure of your heart. Romans 12, 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And then look at that last bullet point. They began to live. And they began to live to exalt, enjoy, and display God's worth. The discipline had 
had done its work. You know, the Jews, after this, never returned to idolatry. Never returned to idolatry. They were broken of idolatry. And as these Jews are returning from their captivity to be restored, they realize the reason we live, the reason for our existence is not our personal gratification, but it's to glorify God. And they came to realize it's in glorifying God that we find the greatest joy, that we'll find the greatest blessing and benefit and fulfillment in our lives. I love Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. This is what we read. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They had just laid the foundation for the temple. Now, some of you that are familiar with the passage, it's sort of interesting there are uh, some of the senior adults that had seen the previous temple that they're weeping instead of rejoicing. And we'll talk more about that next week. There's a, there's, there's a, lesson, there's a lesson in that. But you definitely see in Ezra 3 as they return to the land, as, as they return to their relationship with God, the lights come on. And, and they realize what happened prior to their discipline, that they, they had turned from God. They, they began to see, you know, they would talk about God. They would go through the motions of worship. But prior to that time of discipline, what, what led them there, they got to this place where they, they believed that God was sort of their means to accomplish all their dreams. You know, I can use God to get what I want. It was all about them. It was all about their personal gratification. Now they realize, no, it's not about us. It's about God. It's about glorifying Him. And, I, and, and, and as I glorify Him is when I will become most satisfied. And then look at that, just that last statement in your notes. And don't have time to deal with it all. I mentioned Psalm 146, 147, 148. And what you see there is, the, is, pra, is praising the sovereign God at all times and in all things because he takes pleasure in restoring the brokenhearted and wounded who trust in his mercy. And the reason I, and again, we'll come back to this, but the reason I identified those three Psalms, we all know this with certainty, but you know what the Septuagint is? Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, these three Psalms are attributed to Haggai and Zechariah. The two prophets that we're going to see minister to the people at this time. Haggai and Zechariah are going to be a vital part of our study just within the next week or two. And it's believed that these three psalms were sung when they laid the foundation of the temple. And uh, I would encourage you to read those. And you can, you can see why they would think that way, especially Psalm 147 that talks about captivity and being restored and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. You know, our, uh, I think I got a hymn book over here. Our hymn of invitation today, I, I just noticed this when I sat down this morning. 
And what a great simple, it, it's, it's without him. Before we extend the invitation, I just want to read the words. It's only two verses. Without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I surely fail. Without him, I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. Without him, I could be dying. Without him, I would be enslaved. Without him, life would be hopeless. But with Jesus, thank God, I'm saved. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Do not turn him away, oh Jesus, Jesus, without him, how lost I would be. And that applies to both believers and unbelievers. Again, as we started this message, believers are not immune from turning away from God and getting in a very bad place and falling into captivity to sin and needing to be restored to God. And it all begins right there. Yes, without him, I can do nothing. That's how I got in this position, trying to do it on my own and not trusting in him. And now I need to take this road from ruin to restoration. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that truth applies to you. Uh, you are lost without him. Not only lost in this life, but you'll be lost throughout all eternity, separated from God in eternal hell. But God loves you. God does not desire that for anyone. Just like he doesn't desire to discipline his children, he extends love, he extends mercy. His heart is a heart to restore, to heal, to save. And so uh, I encourage you to turn to him in honesty and transparency today, no matter where you are, a believer, and return to him if that's needed, or if not a believer, that you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus that sacrifice that was made for you on Calvary's tree that we talked about to forgive you of your sin and to deliver you from the very power of sin as well.